Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guests today are Gerardo Gonzalez and Charlie Nelms. Both have had long and distinguished academic careers, spending large portions of those careers in the Indiana University system, and both have personal stories about how trusting in the power of education changed their lives. Gerardo Gonzalez is Dean Emeritus of the Indiana University School of Education and Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies. Gonzalez began his academic career at the University of Florida, earning degrees in psychology, counselor education, and higher education administration. Then he stayed on at the University of Florida to serve as professor and chair of counselor education, associate dean for administration and finance, and interim dean of the College of Education. Charlie Nelms began his tenure within the Indiana University System as Assistant Professor of Education and Associate Dean for Student Services at IU Northwest in Gary. He then left Indiana to accept a position at Sinclair Community College in Dayton, Ohio, but returned to the IU System a few years later to serve as Chancellor of the IU East Campus. A few years after that, he left Indiana again to lead the University of Michigan Flint campus, but the Indiana University alum was drawn back to Bloomington in 1998 to serve in his final IU position as the Vice President for Institutional Development and Student Affairs, as well as Professor of Higher Education Administration. Gerardo Gonzalez and his family immigrated to the United States as refugees from Cuba when he was 11 years old, and he was the first in his family to graduate from college. Charlie Nelms grew up in the Deep South in the 1950s and 60s, working in cotton fields and living in poverty. Both Charlie Nelms and Gerardo Gonzalez have written memoirs that recount their experiences and honor their parents, their mentors, and the transformational power of education. Recently, they sat down and shared some of these stories with one another in the WFIU studios. Well, Gerardo, it's really great seeing you again. Almost 20 years since we first met. During our tenure at Indiana University, I was here when you arrived and uh, had the good fortune of getting to know you during that whole process. Had a chance to work with you and to collaborate on some things that have not only continued, but they've actually been enhanced. So I'm really excited about your book. In fact, I couldn't put it down. I just sort of kept reading. I wanted to read more. And it's amazing how you can know a person for so long and not know a person as well as maybe you think you do. This is a powerful memoir that you have written here. And I look forward really to seeing it on the uh, national bestsellers list one of these days. That would be really great. Well, I don't know about that, Charlie, but uh, (laughs) it was a lot of fun writing that memoir. It captures a lot of uh, the sentiments that I think we both have shared. I also had the good fortune of reading your pre-publication memoir that will be soon released. It's really a fascinating story, and like you, I've known you for, as you say, almost 21 years, hard to believe, and I found so much about your experiences, your growing up, your drive, and the things that motivate you, because I have really enjoyed over a long association, watching your leadership, your advocacy for underrepresented students, and I'm just delighted to be able to chair this program in uh, Profiles. I think it's just a terrific opportunity. Sure, sure. You know, Gerardo, one of the things that 
when I set out to write my memoir, and I'd be curious to know how you approached it, I wanted to tell a story, and I wanted that story to be my story. And I didn't want anyone to go around sort of guessing what Charlie Nelms' story was when I was not able to tell my story. And that was it primarily. I mean, I did not set out to try to prove anything. I wanted to tell a story about my life, the influences, and how those experiences shaped me into the person and the servant leader that I became in the course of my career. And one of the things that I think is really important is that people from our generation, especially people of color, tell our story. If we don't tell our stories, I think the narrative that will be communicated and articulated by others will end up not aligning with the reality of an era or a series of errors over time. So I felt the need to tell the story. So how did you approach yours? I mean, what was your motivation? Before I respond to that, let me tell you some of the things that sort of jumped out at me as I read your story. You're a planner. You know, you, uh, as a child, had dreams. You knew you wanted to be a, a college president at some point. You were driven by those dreams. And if there's one thing that comes across is that those dreams were motivation for you and you pursued them with passion. And I'm not a planner. And so my memoir really sort of evolved. The way that I began writing this memoir was as a result of my first trip back to Cuba after being exiled for more than 50 years. You know, my parents made the decision to immigrate following the Castro Revolution. I was a child of 11 years old when we came to this country as refugees. And I had a number of experiences in schools and through art trials, my parents' efforts to find work. And they became sort of family stories. But once I went back to Cuba for the first time at the invitation of the IU Alumni Association, which was one of the first institutions that got a license to take Cubans or U.S. citizens back when things began to open up. And they asked me to be a host for that group. And so I jumped at the opportunity. And even though I always wanted to go back someday, it wasn't something that I was planning to do. I was hoping someday it would happen. And here the invitation came. And as I arrived in Havana, all of a sudden I had all these emotions and thoughts that came flowing back and memories of my parents and my grandparents and the days of the revolution. And so I started writing those ideas down. And ultimately that led to conversations with my parents about what it was like for them, asking them to sort of expand on stories that I had heard. And that eventually became the memoir. The one thing that I knew I didn't want to do is to say anything in the memoir that wasn't intensely felt or that I didn't feel was very much a part of the man that I become, the professional that I am. But I really didn't know what shape it would take until it was done, really. Well, I want to tell you, you did a fascinating job of telling that story in such a compelling way that it pulled me in. And I think that's really the difference between just writing a book and writing a memoir, and that is to pull the reader in and to make the scenes and the stories so vivid that you can even feel yourself, you know, sort of a goosey bump kind of feel, and I don't want to overstate that, pulling the reader in, and you did a phenomenal job at that. One of the things that you said, you talked about me being a planner, and in some ways, I suppose I 
am and I was a planner. But, you know, the truth be told, Gerardo, I was just trying to get out of the cotton field, man. I just <laughs> knew that there had to be something more to life than working from sunup to sundown on a white plantation owner's land, you know, picking cotton and chopping cotton and living in tin roof house that leaked and we had to place buckets under to catch the water and all of that. And so my plan was really to escape that hellhole. And I had to have an engine to get out of there. My parents convinced me that education was that engine of opportunity. And that if I got myself a good education, that's what my mama used to say. She said, if you get yourself a good education, no one can take it away from you. And boy, was she ever right. Yeah, and that really came through. Uh, You know, we're both first-generation college students. And in my case, parents really didn't even know about college. They knew that there was a place you could go and study and become a doctor or a professional or some of those things that were familiar. Not a counselor or psychologist like I did. They had no idea what that was. But they knew that education was important. And so my father's way of motivating me to get an education was not to talk about college or how education can transform life. It was to use his lived experiences to tell me how important it was that I work hard to do something different and live a different kind of life that he had. And so the way he did it is showing me his hands. My father was an auto mechanic, and he was a passionate auto mechanic. He loved working on cars. Everything that he did regarding car repairs, he did to perfection. It was the passion that drove him. If you've seen a car mechanic's hands, you know that they take on a very distinctive look. You know, they get cut with radiator fans, they get oil under their nails, the skin gets burned with acid and so forth. And so my father would come to me and put his hands in front of me and said, look, Hera, in Spanish, look, Hera, mira mis manos, look at my hands, because I don't want your hands to look like mine when you're my age. And I didn't know what he meant, but I knew that he wanted something better for me. And it was really as a result of life experiences that I discovered college because he couldn't tell me, he couldn't guide me to it. But the motivation that he instilled in me, the impressions and the message that this was important have always been part of my thinking and was throughout my education here in the United States. You know, a similar thing happened with me. I'm from a very large family. Uh, Your family is a smaller one. I'm from a family of 11 children, and we joke about it now, my siblings and I, you know, there were enough of us to have a football team, you know what I mean? There were 11 of us, seven boys and four girls, uh, a very close-knit family. Until this very day, we talk with each other on a weekly basis. We have a family reunion every year, and in fact, I just returned recently from that. It was a wonderful experience seeing all of these siblings and cousins and nieces and nephews, but... My parents just knew, and it's amazing how they knew so intuitively that education was such a powerful vehicle and an instrument. Neither of them graduated even from middle school, Mm -hmm. but they were the best teachers I ever had, and they taught through storytelling, like your father showing your hands, you Mm -hmm. know, like my father picking cotton and chopping cotton and clearing the ground to make new farmland and just powerful, illustrative examples of how life could be different. And, you know, we both had the courage to believe them. 
Yeah. And the good fortune to have parents who really care, and even though they themselves were not educated, they realized that there was a better life for their children. Mm-hmm. And frankly, that's one of the things that I think comes through in my memoir that I didn't actually set out to do, but it turned out that way. You know, all immigrants are motivated to leave their homelands and to pursue better opportunities elsewhere in order to give their children a better life. And I am just so distressed over these policies around family separation and anti-immigrant sentiments that are, I think, transforming our country, because this is a country of immigrants in many ways. And so I think of my parents' experience, and they give up everything, you know, the extended family, the little shop that my father had been able to establish, a little apartment that we lived in, but that was a loving home. And they did this so their children could have a better life. Mm-hmm. And they knew that if their sacrifices were to become reality and worthwhile, they knew that we would have to get an education. So they instilled that in us in every way. I want to go back for a moment. You know, as I was reading your memoir, I found it fascinating how as you work in the cotton fields, you began to dream of a better life. And so if you don't mind, I'm going to just read a little passage that I think reflects what you just said and capture my attention. It was in the cotton field that I learned how to dream. I know that may sound crazy to some, but it's true. My body was in the field, but my mind was never there. Like the characters in Virginia Hamilton's The People Could Fly, a collection of African-American folktales, I dreamt of a more equitable America where my parents and siblings could enjoy a quality of life beyond anything they could imagine. Thank goodness my parents never discouraged any of their children from dreaming, even if they weren't sure our dreams could become reality. What were you thinking when you wrote that? That's just a fascinating... You know, writing my memoir was painful, and yet it was cathartic. And I, I guess those dreams really sort of defined me from a very young age. I've held fast to those dreams, and I still have these dreams of a more equitable, not only America, but a more equitable world where parents aren't separated from their children, where we're not building walls, but we're tearing them down, where there isn't this disproportionate disparate arrest and prosecution by people of color, a world where women are paid on a more equitable basis or commensurated with that of men. So I still have those dreams. So those dreams are really profound and powerful dreams. And you lift it, if you don't mind me saying, because all these years that we've known each other, I've so much enjoyed watching your leadership and your passion for equity and social justice, and you're willing to work hard to make those ideals come to life. I didn't know what the motivation where I could have guessed and surmised, and from my own experience, realized how important that becomes. You know, we were talking earlier about when we first met, Mm-hmm. And you may not even remember this. It's been almost 20 years or more. But I was here interviewing for the dean's job. I was just coming out of Chancellor Gross Lewis's office. That was the last meeting of the day as I headed back home to Florida. And we crossed ways in the staircase there that went from the first floor of Bryan Hall to the second floor. And you stopped. And looked at me, and I stopped because I recognized you from some of our earlier meetings. And you so genuinely, in such a comforting and reassuring way, you said to me, look forward to see you again. 
And at that point, I had no idea that I would be offered the job. This was my first set of interviews. But I went home feeling like if this does come through and I end up at Indiana University, I have a colleague and a friend who believes in me. And to this day, when I think of our acquaintance, that image comes to mind. When Indiana University, Miles Brand and Ken Gross Lewis invited me to return and to serve in the role as vice president, I made it clear that I wanted to pursue an agenda of equity and excellence for all disenfranchised people, not just African-American people, though I'm African-American. But there's this disenfranchisement that is so defining in this country of ours, in this state of ours, and this university of ours, quite candidly. And so I didn't feel that I could be genuine and authentic if I only focused on the African-American community. And so I met some wonderful people on my leadership journey and met you, tons of other people here at Indiana University who weren't people of color, but who had this passion and this commitment for creating a more equitable, in other words, the beloved community that Martin Luther King spoke so eloquently about. So I'm just happy that you and I had that opportunity to work together and to form that friendship and to leave the place just a little bit better than we found it. I certainly hope so. I mean, I'm very proud of what we've been able to accomplish here. There's a lot of work to be done. Sure. Don't get me wrong. This is a never-ending task and goal. But I think... You know, as I reflect back on my days at Indiana University, some of the traditions, some of the things that have remained alive, and because of the work of people like you and your leadership, I think have only strengthened over the years. Gerardo Gonzalez and Charlie Nelms. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Gerardo Gonzalez is author of the memoir, A Cuban Refugee's Journey to the American Dream, The Power of Education. Charlie Nelms has also completed a memoir recently entitled, From Cotton Fields to University Leadership. When I read your memoir, of course I'd read mine and I'm reading yours and I said to myself, what are some of the themes that seem to present themselves throughout these two memoirs? And one that just sort of jumped out at me is this whole issue of mentors, mm-hmm. the benefit, the value of mentors. And you spoke so passionately and eloquently about some of these mentors in your life yeah. at the University of Florida and before you got to the University of Florida. So will you talk just a little bit yeah. about that? Oh, sure. These were people who had defining impact on me. You know, I struggled in the schools here. When I first came here, there were lots of Latino, mostly Cubans, but Latinos mm-hmm. who were trying to settle in South Florida, plain loads of Cuban refugees coming to mm-hmm. Miami every day. And the schools were being inundated with kids who didn't speak English, like myself. So they were struggling. You know, they didn't know what to do with all these kids. And they tried what I call a swim or sink approach, the immersion mm-hmm. kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Sure. That obviously did not work. There was culture, there was uh, not just language issues. And they put us in some classes where all the kids were non-English speakers, mostly Cubans. Mm-hmm. 
And when you get a group of Cubans together, you know, we talk with our hands, we're loud, and you're sitting on neat little rows and waiting for school to start. Wasn't in our culture, wasn't in our mindset. And so the schools became a scary place for many of us, and it certainly was for me. And, and one of the things that I described in my book is an incident in middle school in one of those bilingual classes where principal came to set the class straight. And he scared me so bad, and the experience was so traumatic because he was trying to make an example of me. So I spoke to one of my friends in the class who spoke better English than I and said, what's up? Que dice ese hombre, you know, what's that man saying? And he ran to me, grabbing my arm, pulled me out, shaking me in front of the group, and, and, and that just really turned me off to school for the duration of my academic experience. But I found comfort in being around kids who spoke Spanish, being home and speaking Spanish at home. All my friends were Latin. And when it came time to go to the university, by chance, I ended up at the University of Florida. The University of Florida was a white white majority campus, but in those days it was like a southern institution. There were a few kids from Miami who were attending there at the time, and most of them ended up dropping out and going back to the Latin community because they could not connect to the campus. And I was so lucky that I met a professor who was new to Florida who spoke Spanish. He was from Colorado, Dr. Dick Swanson. And he took a liking to me and he enjoyed speaking Spanish. He had me over his house for dinner. We would socialize. He invited me to do some research with him. And he really became a first academic mentor. And to this day, when I think back about the factors that allow me to succeed and persevere when all my friends were dropping out, mm-hmm. it's because of Dick Swans. Sure. That's just one example mm-hmm. of the mentors that have made a total difference in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, when I look over the course of my life, the constant has been having mentors at all levels, from elementary school through middle school, high school, university level, and then in a professional kind of way. I mean, that's been the constant. Mentors come in all shapes and sizes and colors and genders. And the thing they all had in common is that they cared about us. Mm -hmm. You know, they cared about us. So much so that they were willing to tell us what we needed to hear, whether we wanted to or not, and willing not to give up on us. That is one of the things that I have really taken to heart and have sought to live by, to pay those people back by being the mentor for someone else. And I know you've been that mentor and are still the mentor for so many people in so many ways. We're all standing on someone else's shoulders. We're all standing on someone else's shoulders. Absolutely. You know, in my book, I end with sort of an open letter that I title, To You, the Immigrant. It's really sort of unsolicited advice to immigrants, refugees, and what I call life voyagers. Here's what I said about mentors. Having a mentor or mentors can make an enormous difference in a person's life. My first true mentor was Marvin Levine at the Rogue Boutique in Miami, where I held part-time job during high school. Mr. Levine recognized my work ethic and my flair for retail, and he encouraged me. But then moving forward to my academic mentors, as my professors, Dr. Van Hertzfeld and Dr. Swanson, that's the that I just told you about, did at the University of Florida, mentors helped me discover talents I didn't know I had, opened doors for me, provided guidance, and encouraged me. 
gave me confidence and even became trusted friends. And so my advice to those um, immigrants and refugees and life voyagers trying to fit in, seek and take advantage of mentors. They can change your life. To paraphrase Henry Adams' famous quote about the influence of teachers, a mentor affects eternity. He can never tell where his influence ends. Wow. See, I underlined that. I had underlined that exact passage, and I was just so happy to see it. I think it's excellent advice that you're offering. That's why I want everybody to read this wonderful memoir, because no matter where you are, whether you're starting a career, you're in mid-career, or you're ending a career, uh, reflecting on your career, I think that that's salient advice. And you know, Gerardo, when I was growing up, we didn't call them mentors. We called them role models. Some of them did a much better job of modeling than others, but nevertheless, I guess the bottom line is they cared and they were willing to inconvenience themselves in order to make a difference without casting too much judgment in terms of what's right and what's wrong, but to push us. To push us and yet being accepting of where we were sure. and what the limitations sure. were, and not afraid to tell us. Sure, not afraid to tell us to at tell all. To tell us that, and yeah. I found that helpful. Yeah. Let me go back. You know, in my growing up, I attended a Rosenwald school, and I talk about that in the book, because black people and Negroes did not have access to a public education. So Julius Rosenwald, who started the Rosenwald Fund, was president and CEO of Sears Roebuck and Company. Well, he started these schools, and by the time the Rosenwald Fund had finished, that established over 5,300 one- and two-room and larger schools throughout the southern states. Fascinating. Yeah. I attended one of those little schools, and there's one still standing being used as a community center not too far from where I grew up. So I left high school ill-prepared for college because the curriculum was set up to make sure that plantation owners had an endless supply of cotton pickers and cotton choppers and day laborers. So I didn't have college curriculum, and I had a very low test score. Well, mine wasn't stellar either. Yeah, well, (laughs) (laughs) yours is better than mine, okay? Mm -hmm. But one of the takeaways from me that I tried to convey to students on my journey, and that is that we're more than test scores. Test scores just really can't define people, irrespective of color or gender or cultural background or whatever. And if you read the directions very carefully, the test makers tell us that. They do. But we choose to place more confidence in test scores than we should. But I had a very low test score, but I had this counselor who said to me, Mr. Nelms, your score is sort of low. But if you follow this schedule, you'll be all right. She didn't ask me, Nelms, what would you like to take? She handed me a schedule with remedial courses on it. Now they call them developmental education courses. Mm -hmm. She handed me this schedule, and she said, Mr. Nelms, if you follow this schedule, you'll be all right. And she gave me that beautiful smile as if to say, and I know you can do it. I think of her often. Yeah, well, if there's one thing that really disappoints me today about the educational system is that we become so standardized as grace. As dean of education for 15 years here, some of the most intensely political battles I had to fight was how teachers were evaluated based on standardized scores of their students. Mm-hmm. You know, teaching is so much more. Sure. I mean, it's more than just teaching 
math and science is helping students grow, those teachers are not people who should be measured by standardized scores. Theirs or their students. Mm -hmm. And yet we come to that. And students today, from the time they're in grade school, they're forced to think about the test score, you know, the state test. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways it diminishes what education really is all about, the kind of education that made a difference in your life and mine. I'm fond of saying that education is not just preparation for a job, it's preparation for life. Yes. And I think this standardized test score craze is undermining and moving us away from that thought. I couldn't agree with you more, and that's why people in positions of leadership must be willing to speak truth to power. And to say that out loud as opposed to sort of mumbling to ourselves or having a quiet conversation At the end of the day, if that's all we do, I think we really missed a genuine opportunity to help inform the discussion and influence the policies that are being established. And in fact, what I find so fascinating about the whole thing is that many of the people who are pushing the legislation for stricter test results and all of that outcomes probably would have difficulty passing the test themselves. And if you go and examine their educational background, they weren't these little geniuses that they want to portray themselves as having been now. And that's why people like us and people who aren't like us necessarily must be willing to stand up and say that education is more than a collection of courses. Absolutely. Education is more than where you rank. Education is more than your test score, the how much money you make is more than that. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of person you become, the kind of citizen you become, what you give back, what you contribute. And that is the sum total, I think, of what education is really all about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, earlier you were talking about those one-room schools and those rural schools that uh, were so much a part of the American history and uh, the progress of the population. And there's a passage here in your book, which, again, if you don't mind, I'd like to just read that speaks to some of the challenges that you encounter growing up, attending schools, Mm -hmm. and that those challenges that you encounter could ever have been overcome by getting a high score in some kind of standard test. You say, the grip of racial segregation and American style apartheid was so pernicious during 1950s and 1960s that it instilled in many of its victims a deep sense of fear and erupted them of their sense of hope and self-confidence. Like caged birds who often lose their ability to fly, many of the inhabitants of the Delta lost their ability to dream and to envision a life beyond the cotton fields. Chief among the measures used to suppress and curtail aspirations and preparation for life beyond the farm were poorly funded. Staff and equipped schools, the public nature of the Cuckoo's land activity, the seizing of land owned by blacks under the pretense of unpaid loans, the enforcement of Jim Crow laws related to public accommodations, and the occasional killing of a black male for allegedly, quote, acting white or getting out of his place. Now tell me, what kind of standardized tests could have predicted your ability to overcome those kinds of challenges and circumstances? You know, I don't think there were any predictors of me being here having this conversation with you today 
in all of the space and times and interactions that I've had since I had those experiences growing up in the Arkansas Delta 60 years ago. There were no tests that could have predicted that, no grade point average, no class rank, none of that. Because that system was set up to make sure that I did not proceed or progress beyond what had been designed for me, not by me, not by my people, but by people who control the economy, who control the school board, who control so much of everything. So there were no predictors of that. But, you know, I am so happy that I had these teachers in these little one-room schools, that I had those people who said to us, you know, you're more than what they say you are. Just because they make you go to the back door doesn't mean that you have to have that mindset where you keep going to the back door even after they've changed the rules. So I'm grateful. I don't believe that there's such a thing as luck. So I don't think that you and I are here because we're lucky. I won't play the super religious card. I'll just say to you that I believe that there is a power beyond that which we can see Mm -hmm. and the guidance that's provided to us by people placed in our lives. And so I'm just grateful. and, And I wish that I could have just a moment with every aspiring teacher with every aspiring counselor, with prospective parents. Just just say, hey, your role is a powerful one. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guests are Charlie Nelms and Gerardo Gonzalez, discussing their decades-long careers in academia and their memoirs. I think you've already spoken to this, but this theme of dreams keeps coming through as I read your memoir. And so how did you keep those dreams alive, Charlie? Wow. How did I keep those dreams alive? Well, since I kept chopping cotton and picking cotton and being subjected to the crop dusters spraying that defoliant on us and the mosquito bites, multiple persons to a bed, it was a kind of negative thing that was motivational mm-hmm. as opposed to a positive. So that's how I kept the dreams alive. You know, I grew up in an era when rote memory was considered to be the preferred way of learning, Okay. And so we had to memorize poems, the Gettysburg Address, you know, you name it. I mean, songs and all of that. And there's this one poem that I remember, and I'm a Langston Hughes fan, and I became a Langston Hughes fan during this era of growing up in the Arkansas Delta. I dream a world where man no other will scorn, where love will bless the earth and peace its paths adorn. I dream a world where all will know sweet freedom's way where greed no longer saps the soul nor avarice blights our day. I dream a world where black or white, whatever race you be, will share the boundaries of the earth and every person is free. Of such a world, I dream our world. I'm still on that journey. I'm still on that mission. And we have a long ways to go before we can declare victory. But it was a negative. To answer your question, it was a negative that kept the dreams alive. Well, you know, that comes through 
In fact, I think there's a place here in your memoir where you speak about a jar of cotton that you kept in your desk for 40 years. I guess to remind you of the desire and the pain of having to live that kind of a life, picking cotton and seeing your parents do the same thing and the poverty that you described. It just struck me that you had this jar of cotton in your desk for 40 years to remind you of your roots and the pain that you found, the motivation. And, And then you wrote, when I looked at the jar of cotton on my desk, it reminded me of struggle, dreams, aspirations, the value of hard work, focus, love, and the support I received from my parents. It reminded me of the fact that we, each of us, is more than our titles, salaries, or the fancy house in which we now reside. The cotton jar reminded me daily of the fact that we are more than our possessions and the transformative impact of education. Time and again, I've used that jar and my cotton sack to talk with students of all ages about the importance of dreams, focus, and hard work. Yeah. You know, Gerardo, some people embarrassed by their upbringing and by their past experiences. We are reluctant to tell our story because somehow society places a premium on people who are, quote, wealthy, well-educated, and all of that. But I don't ever want to forget those experiences. And so it's a constant reminder for me, not a reminder of how far I had come, but a reminder that the people that I found myself interacting with through new student orientation or in the classroom, that those people had dreams and aspirations. They had struggles just as I had struggled, and they too could overcome. And so that was a reminder for me, that jar, But it was also an indicator to the lives that I was charged with educating, so to speak. It was an indication to them that, hey, you could be that Charlie. And there are lots of Charlies and Gerardos and Evelyns and Marianne's. There are lots of people out there by different names and of different cultural backgrounds. And so we are called then to try to educate those people. But speaking of the jar and the cotton and all of that, the Indiana University archives have been kind enough to accept my papers going back over about a 55-year period. And at some point, they will be available once they finish the curating process and all of that, available for people who want to take a look. I even have the first speech I made as student body president at Arkansas AM&N College in 1968 at the height of the protest years. But part of it is being willing to share your story. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, IU has been a wonderful place to work. And the archives and the bicentennial, which mm-hmm. in some ways is producing the books that sure. we're publishing, have been wonderful because they have brought people's histories to mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. The archive also accepted my papers mm-hmm. and my go back to my original birth certificate in Cuba. Sure. <laughs> with the original stamps and the details of our immigration here and Mm -hmm. letters that I wrote to my grandparents about being the first one in my family to get a college Mm -hmm. degree and and what he wrote back. And those are treasures, but I thought, how nice to be able to share them with Mm -hmm. others and and future generations because they'll be preserved forever. So I'm I'm very grateful for for their willingness to do that. And I want to say also, Charlie, that Another one of the many common experiences and commonalities between us, not the least of which is that here we find in this point in time writing our respective memoirs and sharing some of these experiences. But 
the idea of remembering our roots, it's so important. You remember your roots as a cotton picker. You found a way to keep reminding you of those roots and have lived to honor them and, and make life better for future generations because you remember. Here's what I wrote in that chapter to you, the immigrant, where I'm speaking about some of my experiences. This section I titled, Remember Your Roots. When I became an academic leader and dean of education at one of America's premier universities, I did not forget my humble beginnings. Throughout my tenure, many faculty, staff, alumni, and students commented on my accessibility, and as one senior administrator put it, your soft touch. I'm not sure what that meant, but I always treated everyone with dignity and respect. I believe in the worth of every individual, and I never let whatever power and influence I had get in the way of treating everyone kindly, equitably, and fairly. And that's because those humble beginnings instill in me a sense of values that I think has served me well. And if I can, in some way, help others think about how important it is for them to remember mm-hmm. their roots mm-hmm. and learn from those experiences to do good, then I think as an educator, I have achieved my yeah. goals. Yeah, you're absolutely right. While education is more than a collection of courses, education is about more than self-empowerment, but it's about empowering oneself to do well for ourselves, but to do good to that village or that community that produced us, because we will forever be a part of that family. No matter where you go, how long you live, you will always be a part of that community that's defined by your culture, defined by my culture. I have no desire to be anything other than who and what I am, you know. I think it's really, really important. Humility, humility, I think, is one of the surest, truest examples of educational effectiveness. And so when the person talked about the soft touch, I think they're really saying that welcoming kind of demeanor that you exude, the warmth with which you receive people, the quietness with which you communicate. Now, I know, you know, we talk about talking with our hands, you know, in the black community. Wow, do we ever. And sometimes I'm in meetings and people will look at me because I'm moving. (laughs) I'm talking and moving my hand so much. But that's a part of the culture. And I hope we don't ever become so refined, so sophisticated that we let go of that because it's who we are. We've been talking about my memoir and me so much. I want to talk a little about you, and and I want to talk about spouses, spouses. You know, you didn't just leap up and jump here. I didn't just leap up and get here one day, you know. We had these parents, but we had these significant others. Yep. And not just for a short period of time, but they've been partners, true partners, yeah, exactly. in whatever exactly. we have achieved. And I want to talk about the person that I met as a sophomore in college who, like me, was from a farm community, a lot smarter than me, was a math major, but smart in other ways as well, who shared common aspiration, and that was to change the outcomes for people from our little rural communities. And we did not know each other in high school, even though we only lived like 15 miles apart or less. We attended different schools in high school. But we teamed up and got married early, right out of college, and came to Indiana University together. Janetta studied mathematics, and I studied higher education and student affairs. 
or in the old days, it was called College Student Personnel Administration with Betty Greenleaf and Bob Schaefer and Kate Mueller and all of those founders of the profession, so to speak. So we've had a chance to team up to do lots of stuff, and I'm only as strong as the person who's been my supporter, my partner. So we've been together for 50 years now. We've been parents to lots and lots of young people, even though we only have one child. And so I've learned so much from Janetta, and she's been my best friend for over 50 years, married for 50 years, but been my best friend for more than 50 years. And she'll tell it straight. You know, whether I want to hear it or not, she'll say to me, Charlie, let me tell you the story. So I remember at North Carolina Central University, we were going through some changes and at the university and lots of issues with budget cutting and all of that, and I was just getting all worked up. She looked at me and she said, Charlie, how old is the university? And I said, um, it's 100 years old. And she said, and how long have you been there? (laughs) (laughs) But at any rate, just a way of saying things that needed to be said lovingly, caringly, So I'm just eternally grateful. So I had good mentors, but without that partner, that collaborator, there's no way in the world I'd be here. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, our our lives, professional and personal, have a lot of commonalities. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are also some differences. And one of the big differences, in my case, opposites attract. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Marjorie and I have been married for over 40 years, and like you, I I don't think I could accomplish anything like I have been able to do without her strong partnership and support. And even while I was writing this memoir, I think she sort of reminded me when my vanity was getting on the way, which I found very, very helpful. But we couldn't be more opposite. You know, she's uh, Irish-Italian. From Philadelphia, (laughs) (laughs) with a hot temper. I guess that we have in common, although I tend to be more of the quiet one in this family. But we met in Miami. She came into my life at a time that I really needed someone. I was going through a very serious um, identity crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we had just moved back to Miami. I had a job that ended up not panning out, and I was sort of lost. And so I ended up starting college in a community college. I could not have been admitted to a selective institution, but that's where I met Marjorie. But even there, I was struggling Mm -hmm. with an identity. Uh, You know, I didn't know whether I was Cuban or or American. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were growing up at a time when the Vietnam War was raging, the counterculture Revolution was in full play, and so in an effort for my friends and I, all of whom were Latin in those days, uh, in an effort to try to fit in, we tried to adopt American ways and even American names. So one of my friends, his name is Oscar Tomas Pedraja, and he adopted Tommy. Uh, Another one of my friends was Arturo, and he called himself Art, and of course I'm and I call myself Jerry. Mm-hmm. It was our way of trying to be accepted and fit in. And I remember hearing about some girls that moved upstairs in our apartment that we used to hang out when we were college kids. And I went upstairs to meet the girls, and Marjorie came to the door. And I said something to the effect that, Hi, I'm Jerry, startled by her looks. 
and I didn't know what else to say. And she said, oh, I know, I've been watching you outside. <laughs> Trader Joe's. <laughs> now, that was a very different kind of person and response that yeah. I expected. Sure. But, but our lives have been an adventure, yeah. and um, we have four grown children now and several grandchildren, and it's been a blessing to have that kind of a partnership for sure. Absolutely. Gerardo Gonzalez and Charlie Nelms. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Gerardo Gonzalez is author of the memoir, A Cuban Refugee's Journey to the American Dream, The Power of Education. Charlie Nelms has also completed a memoir recently entitled, From Cotton Fields to University Leadership. So Gerardo, here we are in 2018, and there's all of this talk about building a wall. You know, we've separated parents and children. We don't know where the children are. So what are we to do? You know, uh, Charlie, um, the kinds of things that you're describing are very distressing to me personally as an immigrant and a refugee and someone who could not have had the opportunities in giving back in the ways that, that I hope I have to my adopter homeland except for the family values that were instilled in me, the fact that my family was together and they were the bedrock of my development and the ability to deal with trials and tribulations of life. And the idea that we are today living in a country that have always welcomed people from throughout the world and have made it an even better place than it is, that today we're talking about building a wall and they were not just talking, but actually separating mm-hmm. families at the border. Mm-hmm. To me, that is just cruel and unusual punishment, if I may mm-hmm. use that term. Mm-hmm. It should not be permitted. It should not happen. Because, you know, as I was saying earlier, all parents sacrifice their kids and have a better life. Sure. And to come to a country because of its promise of a better life and freedom and opportunity for those who work hard and need it, and find out that as a result you're going to be separated from those children for whom you are making the sacrifice, it's just personally devastating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, what do we do about it? You know, I was once asked a question about teaching morality. And frankly, I stumbled. Somebody mm-hmm. in a conversation just asked me out of the blues, how do you teach morality? But since then, I had a chance to reflect on it, and I should have said it right off the bat. I think the best way to teach morality is by example. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the kind of life that we live, sharing our stories, whether it be in a memoirs or speaking to younger groups or other leaders, we need to be an example of those things that we aspire to for this country and for others. Mm-hmm. And you and I have had the blessing of being in leadership position. That brings a special responsibility. But all of us have a voice. Mm-hmm. And all of us have the opportunity to live in a way that inspires others. Mm-hmm. And I think that our nation needs that kind of leadership. Sure. At the grassroots, it needs it at the highest echelons of government. It needs it across the board because the divisions, the hatred, mm-hmm. the just unjustifiable actions that we're taking against people who are different from us Mm -hmm. will bring nothing 
but pain and despair, and ultimately, I believe, could bring the demise of our democracy. Yeah. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and that's why I believe so strongly in this whole view that we all have a voice and we have a vote. There's never a voice that should not be listened to, but one of the most effective ways to speak is through our vote. These issues define us as a nation. Mm -hmm. Me as an African-American man, we're all defined by it. And so we cannot just sort of turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to what is going on. Because to the extent that we do that, then we're saying it's okay that we're not bothered by it. What is happening should so arouse our conscience that we refuse to remain silent. And I believe that unless we exercise our voice and our speaking up and speaking out and standing up and going to the polls and all of that, we're going to look up and we will have a country that will be so diminished. You know, one of the proudest moments in my life was a time when I received a letter unsolicited letters that surprised me from President Ronald Reagan. He was congratulating me on some accomplishments and some contributions that I have made to promote health and well-being of young people in this country. He said in the letter, Nancy and I are proud of your contributions to your adopted homeland. And, you know, I just sat in my office looking at that letter mm-hmm and thinking of my experiences in school and being mm-hmm, discriminated mm-hmm. against and being tracked into a non-college mm-hmm. preparatory because I didn't think I had the ability. And here was the President of the United States congratulating me and thanking me for my fine contributions to my adopted homeland. Well, today I think of the DACA students. Mm-hmm. Those are the future sure. of America. Those are kids who come here, and they work hard, they play by the rules, and they can't give back to their adopted homeland if they're allowed to. They're allowed to. And to close this door and to tell young people like that, Mm -hmm. that, no, you're not only not welcome, but we want to get rid of you. Mm -hmm. It, to me, uh, just a mind-boggling development. Now, you know, you come from families of slaves. You Mm -hmm. work in the Arkansas Delta, mm-hmm. uh, picking cotton, you, you experience firsthand the, the vestiges of, mm-hmm. of racism up and close. I come to my story and, and my memoir from the perspective of an immigrant and a refugee. Mm-hmm. And here's what I said about this notion that in closing the doors to future immigrants, from wherever they may be, mm-hmm. we are doing a disservice to America. America should not close its doors to immigrants and refugees. Now, more than ever, is the time to take stock of what our great-grandparents understood so well, that refugees and immigrants aren't the drains on the capital of American society. Rather, if given opportunity, they can be the future of society, our future as a nation. In an increasingly complex and diverse world, it still depends on being the land of opportunity, a nation still committed 
to the words prominently displayed on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. Keep me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses journeying to breathe free. I believe that. Well, I'm glad you believe it, and I'm glad that you have lived this life of yours. Uh, You live your life in such a way as to illustrate and to demonstrate that every day. I mean, it's been wonderful engaging in this conversation with you, and I look forward to continuing the dialogue and I'm making some joint appearances, you know, to just talk with people. Who would have told us 20 years ago we make on that stairway that we would be no, sharing the no. stage with uh, the WFIU Profiles yeah, Program? Yeah, well, yeah, it's a great yeah. program. It's a great program. And and, it's a great and, conversation yes, to have with you. Yeah, absolutely. And want to thank the people at WFIU for giving us this opportunity, this platform. And I've already purchased multiple copies of your book, and I'm going to be giving it as gifts to people and that kind of thing. And and mine will be out in uh, 2019, and of course, yours is available right now. And now, with both got education in in our titles, um, from cotton fields to yeah. yes, higher yes. education leadership, it's it's a wonderful journey. Uh, in my case, I titled this "A Cuban Refugee's Journey to the American Dream: sure. The Power of Education." The power of education. Well, Gerardo, all the best for continued success and good health to you. And we're going to get a chance to continue these conversations well into the future. I look forward to it, Charlie. Thanks to you. So do I. Thank you. Charlie Nelms and Gerardo Gonzalez. Charlie Nelms is a former chancellor of universities in Indiana, North Carolina, and Michigan, and he's currently a senior scholar at the American Association of State Colleges and Universities. Gerardo Gonzalez is Dean Emeritus of the Indiana University School of Education and Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies. Both have recently published memoirs available through Indiana University Press. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.